Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a reminder that all of my podcast material, the episodes, the descriptions, the show notes, and some resources that I identify from episode to episode can be found on my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I also have a blog that I've been writing in for about two years, and I think there's some good stuff there if you want to check it out. And that can be found at cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. In today's episode, we're going to really do a deep dive into the NCAA's quest for antitrust immunity. And we've talked about uh, the kind of predicates of antitrust law and then some of the normative values that underlie some judicial thinking and how antitrust law has been applied to cases in which athletes are challenging the NCAA's compensation limits. But it's really important to understand heading into this Austin oral argument on March 31st and then ultimately to a decision by the Supreme Court that the NCAA's request here is a really bold, audacious request that would completely immunize the NCAA from any antitrust suits in the future filed by athletes challenging any of the NCAA's quote-unquote eligibility rules. And the way that the NCAA is defining its eligibility rules, that would uh, cover any compensation limit that's contained in NCAA rules and regulations. It would also include things that may not directly relate to compensation, but go to the athletes' rights and their uh, operation within the market, like uh, scholarship limits. And we talked about that with this Agnew decision out of the Seventh Circuit, or transfer rules. And we talked about that with this DEPI decision, and that was also out of the Seventh Circuit. But I'm going to talk about this on on two levels because the NCAA has been pursuing its quest for antitrust immunity on two fronts at the same time. And they've done it in Congress and they've done it in the federal judiciary. And this Austin case has coincidentally operated on the same timeline as the NCAA's quest for these extraordinary immunities and protections in Congress. So to put this into perspective, I really want to recap what this perfect storm is all about and what the NCAA is trying to achieve in its multi-prong attack to preserve its regulatory authority. Because it, it has several components. This antitrust immunity component is only one. So when you look at the NCAA's belief that it's been under existential threat from these external forces. We're looking at the federal lawsuits that athletes have filed in these antitrust cases. That's one thing. So the NCAA wants to eliminate federal courts as potential external regulators of college athletics by having a free pass from having to be responsible for or accountable under federal antitrust law so that they can do whatever they want to without any fear that uh, they're going to be defending an antitrust suit. The other threat, the primary threat, is the state legislatures that have been been passing these ostensibly nil 
laws, name, image, and likeness laws that are designed to try to get athletes some nil compensation. But some of those are not at all what they seem, and, and we'll be talking about that down the line as well. But the NCAA and the Power Five have looked at those laws, uh, particularly the California law, which was passed in uh, 2019, as a clear and direct threat to their regulatory power because both in these antitrust suits and in these state laws, these external regulators are imposing obligations on the NCAA that the NCAA doesn't want to have imposed upon them. And they're basically telling the NCAA that they have to do things the NCAA doesn't want to do. And that is, in the NCAA and, and Power Five's view of the world, the worst case scenario because they want absolute iron throne control of college sports regulation, and more importantly, the college sports marketplace from which they are all getting filthy, filthy rich. And of course, now with the change in the Senate from Republican to Democrat, you have a theoretical threat, an additional threat from Congress. You know, before the January 5th special election, the NCAA was really on its way through a Republican-controlled Congress and a very savvy behind-the-scenes lobbying campaign to getting a very NCAA-friendly bill out of the Senate that was going to give them everything that they wanted. And that changed. So now they don't really have control of Congress, and they, they have to now view Congress as a potential external regulator. And with the, the change in the White House from Republican to Democrat, you now have the Democrats in control of the executive branch, and the executive branch has extraordinary authorities. And now the NCAA and Power Five are having to look at that as a potential threat. And we're going to talk about those two more down the line. And I think there are some built-in checks on those two threats that may give the NCAA some wiggle room. And we'll, we'll talk about more of that as we go forward. But for right now, I really want to focus on the antitrust litigation, the athlete-initiated antitrust litigation, and then these state laws where states are coming in and passing state laws that trump NCAA compensation limits and directly conflict with the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and the quote-unquote collegiate model. But it's important to understand that in this antitrust campaign, the NCAA has, has been operating on these two tracks, and they've been playing them off against each other. And I addressed this in some of the early episodes, but I wrote about this in a post titled, Can Congress Manage the Clock in Austin and in Congress? And it's been a really interesting kind of cat and mouse game they've been playing from a timing standpoint and seeing what they, were, they thought they were going to get in Congress, and then what they thought they might get in the U.S. Supreme Court. And there have been some purely fortuitous events that have influenced both of those options. And now it's pretty clear with the change in the Senate that, that the Supreme Court option is the, the best option. And, and that's also where this Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was really important because you, you had, I think, a voice on the court that was going to be athlete friendly. And her replacement, Amy Coney Barrett, is kind of the dream justice for the NCAA, at least on paper. So that was a consequential event. And so we're going to see exactly how that all plays out. But what I really want to do now is kind of go back and look at how the NCAA has framed these issues. And I want to do it within the context of this broader goal under the perfect storm to eliminate external regulators. And the NCAA has been very coy about talking about that. And you have to really dig deep into the bowels of their, their strategy 
to tease that out and look at the statements that really go to support that. So I want to do a, a bit of a timeline because when I was talking about this perfect storm, I, you know, it starts in 2006 with these antitrust cases, White, O'Bannon, and Austin, and carries us into this wave of state legislation, which really began in earnest in 2019. So this period, 2019 to the present, and then projecting into the ruling uh, that the Supreme Court's going to make in this Austin decision, is really important. And you, you need to think about how those events all came together to formulate the NCAA's broader strategy. So we're going to need to look really at the interplay between O'Bannon and Austin on the legal side, because those two cases are so inextricably linked that you have to read them together. And we're going to go back to some of the positions that the NCAA took in O'Bannon, where they explicitly asked for antitrust immunity, in my judgment. And they weren't really hiding the ball in O'Bannon. And then as O'Bannon wound down and then it died on the Supreme Court steps in 2016, and then Austin ramped up, you know, Austin was filed in 2014. So Austin's pl playing out. And as it's moving along, you all then have these state legislatures coming in to pass these laws. And then you had some activity in the House of Representatives. I talked earlier about this Mark Walker bill in May of 2019. And then I think it was later in 2019 that Donna Shalala offered a bill out of the House of Representatives. But both of those bills were threats to the NCAA. And so you had all this stuff kind of coming together. And the NCAA changed its strategy. It was much more low-key and much more secretive about its quest for antitrust immunity, both in Congress and in this Austin case, as all these issues started to come together. But to, to show you what the NCAA really is seeking here, I want to go back to a couple of the comments that come from the NCAA that I think really expose their ultimate goal here, and, and that is to be in the in sole possession of the iron throne of college sports regulation. So Judge Wilkin, uh, who handled both O'Bannon and Austin, issued her opinion in Austin, this 104-page opinion, on March 8th. 2019. It was in the first week of the NCAA tournament or just leading into the NCAA tournament. And it got a little press, but then just got subsumed in, in all the March Madness noise. Then on March 23rd, 2019, still in the heat of the NCAA tournament, the NCAA, through its chief legal officer, Donald Remy, issued a statement announcing that they were going to appeal the Austin case to the Ninth Circuit. And here is what Remy said about that appeal. And, and we have to really break this down because it's, it's important. He says, The NCAA's longstanding commitment, supported by its schools and conferences, is to provide student-athletes with the educational benefits they need to succeed in school and beyond. While the district court upheld the distinction between full-time students who play college sports and professional athletes, it erred by giving itself authority to micromanage decisions about education-related support. We believe, and the Supreme Court has recognized, that NCAA member schools and conferences are best positioned to strengthen and revise their rules to better support student-athletes rather than forcing these issues into continuous litigation. The NCAA and conference defendants unanimously agree to appeal the district court's decision. So what's the NCAA saying here? They're saying that the NCAA and only the NCAA 
has the authority to regulate in college sports. And they're saying these federal courts need to just butt out because they don't understand the business. They don't know what they're doing. And only the NCAA is in a position to make judgments about what's best for the education interests of student athletes. So again, they're rolling it up through this education thing, but which is ironic, I will just point out. So they're appealing an award of these modest education-related benefits that the NCAA refused to provide and would not have provided and probably won't provide if they get their way in Austin. And they're an educational nonprofit. So that irony was not lost on the Ninth Circuit when the case uh, went to the Ninth Circuit and it issued its opinion and the athletes' attorneys made that point as well. But this had nothing to do about the NCAA being in the best position to offer or not offer education-related benefits. It was about preserving the Iron Throne authority to be the sole regulator of college sports. And I believe that the NCAA says so explicitly there. So that's March 23rd of 2019. And importantly, around the same time, this was in March, maybe it was actually before the March 23rd date, but sometime in early to mid-March, North Carolina Congressman Mark Walker introduced a bill in the House of Representatives that would have stripped the NCAA of its tax-exempt status. It's an educational nonprofit, unless it provided no opportunities. And it was, honestly, it didn't have much teeth, but it, and it was largely symbolic in my judgment. But I think the NCAA knew something was brewing in Congress, and Mark Walker had been an open and aggressive advocate on behalf of athletes' rights and a critic of the NCAA. And then, and shortly after the introduction of the Walker bill and then the NCAA's decision to appeal Austin in May, May 14th of 2019, the NCAA announces the formation of a working group titled the Board of Governors Federal and State Legislation Working Group. And that working group was initially designed in response to legislation relating to student-athletes' ability to license and benefit from name, image, and likeness during their participation in NCAA athletics. And its initial charge in the press release that the NCAA put out and in the charge of the working group itself, here's how it was characterized. The board created the working group to study whether the association should maintain its opposition to the proposed state and federal legislation, or whether it should work to develop a process whereby a student-athlete could be compensated for the use of their nil in a fashion that would be consistent with the NCAA's core values, missions, and principles. Okay, that's an important characterization because from its very inception, That working group wasn't designed to embrace uh, nil compensation for athletes and then to help move a bill through Congress to make that happen, which is what they started saying after public opinion turned on them. The initial purpose of that working group was really to dig in and find a way to try to stem this momentum in the House of Representatives and then in the state legislatures, because in May of 2019, the California legislature was putting together this bill that they passed in the fall in September of 2019 that would have given NCAA athletes in California the right to make money from their name, image, and likeness, and it directly conflicted with NCAA regulations and their existing prohibition on name, image, and likeness compensation. So as I noted in episode one, the NCAA working group 
kind of morphed from this initial position that was really, I think, designed to oppose any attempt to offer a reasonable framework for nil compensation for athletes into a facilitator of that. And I think during this transition, they were formulating their strategy in Congress. And I'll go through that in a little more detail when I talk about the working group's final report. And I'm going to read from that right now, but only for the purpose of establishing right now that the NCAA's primary goal all along has been to preserve its regulatory authority and eliminate external regulators. So the NCAA working group goes and does its stuff, and it issues an interim report in October that gets all kind of press. And then on October 29th, 2019, the NCAA Board of Governors blesses that October 23rd, 2019 interim report. And the media goes crazy. Nil compensation, nil compensation. It's, It's not really at all what the working group said in its October 23rd interim report. But the NCAA wanted the public to believe that it was moving forward aggressively and purposefully to get these athletes some nil compensation, when in fact, they had created a, they were in the process of creating a special presidential subcommittee of the working group that was tasked exclusively to manipulate Congress to try to get extraordinary federal protections and immunities that would have preserved the Iron Throne. So in their final report, which was dated April 17th, 2020, now this is post-COVID, so they continued their good work through COVID while the rest of the world shut down. They issued their final report on April 17th. It was published in the uh, media and, and released to the public on April 29th. And in discussing the formation and purpose of this presidential subcommittee on congressional action that was really engaging Congress to try to get some these athletes some nil compensation, but only within these guardrails that they identified, which made nil compensation impossible. They stated, kind of they let the cat out of the bag on what they really wanted to do here. So I just want to read this paragraph. And this is in a section where they're describing the purpose of this presidential committee on congressional action. And they say, they say, Further, the subcommittee believes that the NCAA is the most appropriate and experienced entity to oversee intercollegiate athletics, given the uniqueness of the collegiate model of athletics, its member-driven nature and daily connection to student-athletes, the breadth and scope of its administrative operations, its willingness to respond to the evolving needs of student-athletes, and its long track record of providing remarkable opportunities for student-athletes to gain access to higher education. And how is the NCAA going to do that? Well, this subcommittee tells us on the very next page under its recommendations And it says that the Board of Governors should immediately engage Congress to accomplish the following. One, ensure federal preemption over state name, image, and likeness laws. Two, establish an antitrust exemption for the association. Three, safeguard the non-employment status of student-athletes. Four, maintain the distinction between student-athletes and professionals, and five, 
uphold the NCAA's values, including diversity, inclusion, and gender equity. They have to throw that into everything. It's comical. We'll talk about that too in separate episodes. But this is the blueprint. This is the blueprint for the NCAA doing precisely what it said it was going to do in the prior paragraph, and that is be the sole regulator in college sports. And so this is really the acknowledgement that that's precisely what the NCAA is trying to do here. And an essential component of that is eliminating antitrust liability. So they say that explicitly on the congressional side, but on the judicial side, in this Austin case, they're outright denying that they are seeking antitrust immunity or that they even want antitrust immunity. It's just so profoundly dishonest. So I want to tease out how they have couched their arguments, both on the judicial side and on the legislative side, and how those two things have played off against each other, so that we know going into this oral argument on March 31st that the NCAA is undoubtedly seeking antitrust immunity because they believe it is an essential component of preserving their uh, sole authority to regulate in the area of college sports and amateurism, and and that's just a way to preserve their business interests. In one of these amicus briefs, these are friend of the court briefs, and you can file either for one party or the other, and there's some rules that apply to when you file your brief if you're a friend of the court and you're supporting one party or the other. But after the NCAA filed its initial briefs, there was this window for parties who supported the NCAA's position to file their their supporting briefs. And the American Council on Education and some of its affiliated organizations filed a brief in support of antitrust immunity, essentially. But their core argument, and it's not an argument the NCAA has made in Austin because they don't want to draw attention to this because they have such a, a bad reputation as a regulatory authority. But the American Council on Education comes out and just explicitly says, this is really about just making sure that the NCAA and only the NCAA is on the iron throne of college sports regulation. And it's funny how direct they are. It's almost like, were they really talking to the NCAA lawyers? I'm not sure that that was exactly how the NCAA wanted that issue to be rolled up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But when you look at the bills, the proposals that have come out in the Senate, and there are a couple of them, actually three of them, that sort of tease out this kind of disguised uh, hostile takeover of the college sports regulatory market. You really begin to see how basic that is to the NCAA strategy. So in June, mid-June of 2020, Florida Senator, Republican Senator Marco Rubio puts forth a proposal ostensibly a name, image, and likeness proposal that was given the Orwellian title Fairness in Collegiate Athletics Act. Yes, the Fairness in Collegiate Athletics Act. And in that bill, Rubio sets forth these principles for the provision of any name, image, and likeness-related compensation. And on its face, it appears supportive of nil compensation. But like all of the bills that have come into the Senate from the NCAA and its allies, it's nothing what it looks like on its face. And remember, at this time, in June of 2020, you have the working group already having published its final report. 
Then you have also had in February of 2020, the first of four hearings in the Senate that the NCAA micromanaged, their lobbying firm kind of got everything teed up. All these went through Republican committees, uh, Committee on the Commerce Committee, which has original jurisdiction on sports-related issues. is chaired by Roger Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi, and a subcommittee of commerce does this initial hearing that was nothing more than a dog and pony show for the NCAA. And I'm going to go through all these hearings in detail when we go through month by month uh, what happened in the perfect storm. But for the purposes of this episode, when setting up this antitrust immunity argument that the NCAA NCAA is doing both in Congress and, and in the courts, there was already momentum in the Congress, in a Republican-controlled Congress, for a comprehensive bill that was going to give the NCAA all of these extraordinary federal protections and immunities that would have basically made it untouchable. And they could have done whatever they wanted to on nil, which means nothing. But anyway, so Rubio, under the guise of name, image, and likeness compensation, throws together this bill that contained everything the NCAA wanted. It had an aggressive preemption provision. It had a, you know, quote unquote, safe harbor provision that was really kind of snuck into the bill. It's not very obvious when you read through exactly what its import is. And then it brings in amateurism as a foundational principle for the bill. And it doesn't require the NCAA to do anything on a specific nil benefits policy or change any rules until after it has received all these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And that was true for the bill that NCAA then put before the Congress in July, and then what Roger Wicker put before Congress in December. And they all had that same uh, framework and that same format. The NCAA is ultimately the final decision maker on what these any nil change may look like, but they don't have to do anything until they have received these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And these bills were just were just ruse, just a complete ruse to deceive the public into thinking that the NCAA was doing something on nil, when in fact what they were getting were these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And one of the central features of all of these bills is that they were presented for public relations purposes as being limited, quote-unquote limited, to name, image, and likeness. But when you look at how they're drafted, they're not limited to nil at all. And they give the NCAA complete immunity from any of its compensation limits or any of its eligibility rules. And that was another thing that was just stunning to me that the media didn't tease that out because that was just fundamentally dishonest, particularly on the preemption. The working group says explicitly in its April 17th report that the elimination of state laws and state legislatures as external regulators was going to be limited to nil, leading the public to think that this was to facilitate nil compensation. But when you look at the actual language of the preemption provisions that came through these three bills, they are not limited to nil. And the federal preemption would have related to any NCAA compensation limit. And that that's a, a really big issue in my judgment. And uh, NCAA was just so dishonest in how it presented that single issue. And that's you know a really important component of their campaign for the Iron Throne. So just as an example, this Rubio bill has a provision. It's a very short bill, but it has a provision under enforcement provisions where the FTC has on paper a, a role for enforcing unfair or deceptive 
acts or practices, but that's a ruse too, because this all gives authority to the NCAA, the way that it's actually put together. But section B says, no cause of action shall lie or be maintained in any court against any intercollegiate athletic association or any institution of higher education, which is a member of such association for the adoption or enforcement of a policy rule or program established under section three. And that section three was this uh, grant of deference to the NCAA, the institution and the national organizations to come up with nil policies after they get these extraordinary protections. So This was a blanket antitrust immunity provision. And then in mid-July, just before hearings on July 22nd, this is 2020, July 22nd, 2020, the Senate Judiciary was holding hearings on this uh, nil compensation issue. And the Judiciary Committee had jurisdiction because it is responsible for antitrust matters. So the only reason the Judiciary Committee has jurisdiction is because the NCAA is asking for an antitrust immunity from the Senate. And while it's denying that it's seeking antitrust immunity in in the Austin case, I mean, it's just, again, just stunning that the media didn't see these two things playing off against each other and the fundamental tension and misdirection that NCAA was using on the legal side about its intentions and its activities in the Senate. But the NCAA secretly, okay, they don't put this out publicly, they secretly send to certain senators a proposal. And remember, the NCAA is not supposed to be involved at all as the NCAA or through the NCAA National Office to do anything on nil because they claim they have this independent, the working groups independently looking at nil policy and they've issued their final report. And then the divisions, the three divisions were required independent of the NCAA And outside of the NCAA national office bureaucracy and direction from the NCAA president or any of the board of governors directives, they were to act independently to come up with voluntary name, image, and likeness rules changes. And everybody was waiting for this because the NCAA promised that was going to happen by January of 2021. So when the NCAA snuck this proposal into the Senate, in July of 2020, nobody was asking why in the world the NCAA was acting unilaterally and and going into the Senate for a bill that would completely upend this claimed voluntary rulemaking process that was divisional, not NCAA. So anyway, the NCAA didn't want anybody to see this proposal, but it was discussed at the July 22nd hearing. Sports Illustrated somehow got a copy of a few of the pages of that proposal, and they published it. So I I saw that article and there were like four pages, and they appear to capture the substantive provisions that I think are relevant to the NCAA's ultimate goal in, in the Senate. But it was very sneaky. And so I actually reached out to one of my senators. I live in North Carolina. I reached out to one of my senators. They're both Republicans. One's been an outspoken critic of nil compensation. And we'll talk about him later. That's Richard Burr. So I reached out to Tillis's office. And I thought, well, maybe you know, I'll get a reasonable response. All I wanted was a copy of the bill. That's all I wanted. I wanted the whole, a copy of the whole bill. And then the Power Five apparently had submitted a similar kind of bill that completely off the record that they weren't going to provide. I called the conference office to get the, the, I called the ACC conference office to get those documents. And they said, nope, can't have them. So I talked to my senator. Nope, 
can't have them. <laughs> and it is just, you just can't make this stuff up. The aide that I talked to, he was a great guy, a nice guy. And I think he had some uh, working knowledge of, of kind of what was going on, but not a super detailed understanding of the issues or the business model. But he said, you know, maybe you could serve a Freedom of Information Act request on, on some of the public institutions that might have that those records in your in their possession. <laughs> I just, what do you do? What do you say to that? You just, thanks, thanks for your time. Gosh, God bless you. But from this incomplete copy of the proposal that SI published, I did a post on that. And there is a, in that proposal, it has the same similar structure as Rubio's bill and this notion of the NCAA and Power Five get these extraordinary federal protections and immunities up front. And then six months later, the NCAA comes up with some specific nil policies and, and then everything is okay. But one of the provisions of that NCAA policy, and let's see, what do they what do they call this thing? Hold on a second. This is the Intercollegiate Amateur Sports Act of 2020. Sounds pretty good, huh? So in this proposal, the NCAA, along with some other the other protections, the preemption and, and athletes can't be employees, they include Section Five titled Safe Harbor slash Limitation of liability. And it reads, the NCAA shall be protected from legal challenges originating from federal or state unfair competition statutes and or federal tortious interference statutes based on unfair competition concepts if the action arises from the execution of the responsibilities or functions described in Section 6 of this Act. So then you have to go to Section 6 to see exactly what those functions are. And again, the way this proposal is structured, the NCAA would get all of these draconian protections and immunities before they have to commit to a single nil policy or nil compensation opportunity. And so they have this delay between the time they get those powers and then the time they have to commit to them. So it says that by June 30th, 2021, the NCAA shall establish, quote, common rules, standards, procedures, or guidelines for maintaining the principles of amateurism in intercollegiate athletic competition, including but not limited to, and that's really important, including but not limited to, common rules, standards, or procedures for one, the administration of financial aid, participation benefits, licensing revenues, or other benefits or payments, including with respect to the use of names, likenesses, or images of amateur intercollegiate athletics, or two, criteria for determining the eligibility of an amateur intercollegiate athlete to participate in intercollegiate athletic events conducted under the rules or bylaws of the NCAA, including but not limited to, and then there's some other stuff. What does that mean? That means that these protections have absolutely no limitation. They're not limited to nil. It's including but not limited to name, image, and likeness, which is a blanket antitrust immunity provision. And this is just an audacious power grab, and it is an explicit request for complete and total antitrust immunity. Yet, in the Austin suit, 
the NCAA says to the United States Supreme Court, we are not seeking an antitrust exemption. We do not seek antitrust immunity. And we want to comply with antitrust laws. This is just an ordinary application of the rule of reason analysis. And that is just complete and utter nonsense. But the NCAA has been very clever about hiding its intentions for antitrust immunity in Congress because in its briefing in Austin in the U.S. Supreme Court, it has not come out and said out loud what it was trying to get in Congress. The athletes' lawyers made some oblique reference to it, and the NCAA just, they did a little sachet. They kind of did a sidestep, but didn't acknowledge outright, didn't disclose to the court. And I think they had an obligation to disclose this to the court, that yes, they are seeking antitrust immunity, and they're sure as heck seeking it in Congress, and they're doing it explicitly. So this suggestion that goes beyond how they frame the rule of reason analysis and whether that constitutes a, a request for antitrust immunity is really independent of of their broader suggestion that they're not interested in antitrust immunity. They absolutely are, and it is an essential component of their overall strategy to, to take and own and keep the iron throne of college sports regulation. And before I go into how they've handled this request for antitrust immunity on the legal side, and that's going to take us through O'Bannon and, and into Austin. I just wanted to note this Wicker bill, this Roger Wicker bill, which came out in, in December. And it was a little more complex, and its intentions were better disguised, I think. And remember, Commerce was the committee in the Senate where all the stuff was expected to, to flow through because it has this original jurisdiction in sports-related issues. So everybody was looking to Wicker. And he was really late with that bill. The timing of it was interesting. It also happened to coincide, I think, with the very same day that the United States Supreme Court announced that they were going to accept the Austin case for review. And, and this was after all the briefing on whether the court should take the case. The court decides to take the case. And at the same time, Wicker's bill comes out. And it, it basically lands in the same place. It's amateurism, amateurism, amateurism. And ultimately, the people who are in charge of deciding how the amateurism rules are going to be applied are NCAA insiders and Power 5 insiders. It was a little more complicated and it took a little more time to tease that out, but I posted on that and I'll look to that in the show notes. So now let's, let's look at how the NCAA has characterized its request for antitrust immunity. And we have to go back to O'Bannon because as, as I said earlier in the episode, the NCAA was much more explicit in O'Bannon about what it was seeking. And both in O'Bannon and then in Austin, the NCAA raised a set in each case of kind of threshold defenses that they thought really precluded the court from having to go into the whole rule of reason antitrust analysis. And it's important to look at those in both cases to see exactly what the NCAA was saying. Because as I mentioned, as this name, image, and likeness issue has evolved and the NCAA has used it as a disguise to try to get these extraordinary immunities and protections, the NCAA has been much more sophisticated in how it has buried its request for antitrust immunity in federal courts. And I think a lot of observers who had followed O'Bannon and, and really paid attention to the briefing there, and then also were following Austin in the briefing in the both at the district court level and, and then particularly in the Ninth Circuit, thought that the NCAA may have abandoned its request for antitrust immunity in these federal antitrust suits, and specifically Austin. And you really had to pay attention 
to how the NCAA framed its arguments in its Ninth Circuit briefing. And, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I just wanted to, to make clear that they've completely ch changed their strategy about how they have presented their request for antitrust immunity between O'Bannon and Austin. And, and again, that, that dovetails with all of this activity on nil and the state laws and the threats coming out of the House of Representatives and the NCAA went stealth with their congressional campaign through this working group and the presidential subcommittee. And, you know, it reads like a spy novel almost when you look at the extent to which the NCAA disguised their intentions to achieve antitrust immunity in the federal courts. So I want to go to the Ninth Circuit opinion in O'Bannon. And at the beginning of its analysis, it addressed all of the arguments that the NCAA had raised and there were some of these threshold arguments that would have prevented the court from reaching the merits if any of them had merit. And here is how the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals described those arguments, those threshold arguments that the NCAA made. And this was in uh, 2015. On appeal, the NCAA contends that the plaintiff's Sherman Act claim, and that's the antitrust law, fails on the merits but it also argues that we are precluded altogether from reach, reaching the merits for three independent reasons. Number one, the Supreme Court held in NCAA versus Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma that the NCAA's amateurism rules are valid as a matter of law. Number two, the compensation rules at issue here are not covered by the Sherman Act at all because they do not regulate commercial activity. And three, the plaintiffs have no standing to sue under the Sherman Antitrust Act because they have not suffered antitrust injury. That third one's really not relevant because that was a, another issue in the case. But those first two expressions of threshold defenses that the NCAA offered are antitrust immunity, particularly this second one. And we talked about this in, in, when we talked about how they pitched Board of Regents early on in O'Bannon. But they say the compensation rules at issue here, athlete-based, amateurism athlete-based compensation limits, are not covered by the Sherman Act at all because they do not regulate commercial activity. So they're not saying in O'Bannon that, yeah, antitrust laws apply, and in this rule of reason analysis, we're entitled to this deference, this amateurism-based deference, which basically gives us a free pass under antitrust laws. They're saying antitrust laws don't even apply here because we're not engaged in commercial activity. And that's pressing rewinds to cases well before Board of Regents when there was some discussion about whether certain types of nonprofit entities were within the scope of federal antitrust laws. And there were some cases on both sides of the fence, and some of them related to professional organizations. Like there was the, the Goldfarb case in, involved an attorney's association, and there was professional engineers that, that involved an engineering society. And are those were those intended to be covered by antitrust laws? The NCAA was basically saying that it, as an institution, was like a nonprofit professional association or a PTA or some Mickey Mouse nonprofit that wasn't engaged in commercial activity when it came to its regulation of amateurism-based compensation limits applied to athletes. That, that couldn't be a clear articulation of antitrust immunity. Yet the NCAA now, six years later, in Austin, is saying that that's not what they're asking for. And that is simply not the case. 
And I'll just add on the O'Bannon case and the way the NCAA rolled up those issues. They then appealed the Ninth Circuit opinion to the U.S. Supreme Court. So did the athletes. They were you know, cross appeals. And in the NCAA's briefing to the United States Supreme Court, they make it explicitly clear that they're seeking antitrust immunity. There's, there's no question about that. So they weren't disguising that in O'Bannon. O'Bannon. It's not until we get to Austin that we see this very carefully crafted, very well-disguised effort to try to bring antitrust immunity in, in different clothing. So let's talk a little bit about the Austin case and the Austin appeal. So as we discussed in the last episode, that was a case that related to education benefits. And the the NCAA appealed that case. The, the district court issued an injunction, very limited injunction, that allowed the Power Five conferences to award very limited, specified education-related benefits. They weren't required to. They were purely permissive. And as I noted in earlier episodes, there's no evidence that they have offered a single educational benefits that would fall within that injunction. But the NCAA appealed. And as I read earlier, their announcement of the appeal was basically saying that federal courts have no business meddling in the NCAA's business. So that was the, the Iron Throne argument. But from a legal standpoint, they were saying that all of the Austin claims, the, the, the claims in the Austin complaint, were barred by O'Bannon under principles of preclusion, basically saying that these issues have already been decided in O'Bannon. So the NCAA was actually arguing for the Austin court to support the O'Bannon ruling, because the O'Bannon ruling is, as I discussed in the prior episode, a really good ruling for the NCAA because it eliminates the greatest threat to the NCAA's regulatory power, and that is an open and free market for athlete services. And and the O'Bannon Ninth Circuit decision said you can't have that. And in making that case, what the NCAA was saying is O'Bannon didn't open the door to benefits that are related to education, even though it struck down the $5,000 trust funds because they weren't tethered to education. The NCAA is saying that that doesn't mean that it had, by negative implication, ruled that any education-related benefit was permissible. And they relied on language from the O'Bannon decision that said, the rule of reason requires that the NCAA permitted schools to provide up to the cost of attendance to their students. It does not require more. So the O'Bannon court talked about the remedies and said, okay, we upheld the cost of attendance scholarships, and those are related to education because they're part of the athletic scholarship. But these trust funds had nothing to do with education, and that was how the decision was left. And then Austin, Judge Wilkin and Austin picked up on that kind of framework, this education versus non-education related benefits. And interpreted the O'Bannon decision as kind of permission to award as a remedy some additional education-related benefits that went above the full cost of attendance. And the NCAA was saying, nope, that's not what O'Bannon means. O'Bannon has decided this this issue. We're very happy with O'Bannon, and we're very happy to have the remedy in O'Bannon be limited to cost of attendance scholarships because, quite frankly, the NCAA, or at least the Power Five through this autonomy legislation, they were going to do that anyway. So it was not a big deal. The the ultimate outcome in O'Bannon was largely favorable to the NCAA. So they were raising this in the context of, of preclusion and stare decisis, which are fancy legal words for, we've already addressed this issue in the same context and you can't raise it again. And that's what they were saying. 
The district court, hearing that and, and some other threshold arguments, issued a really important ruling early in the case in a motion for summary judgment. And in a civil lawsuit, parties can file pretrial motions to try to get certain issues resolved in their favor as a matter of law. Sometimes it can be the whole case. Sometimes it's certain issues in a case. But in this case, both parties cross-moved for summary judgment to get some issues resolved in their favor as a matter of law before the case went forward. And one for the NCAA, what they were basically saying is this case shouldn't go forward because we've been there, done that. And the court said no. And that this is a different case and that it is going to go forward. And then they made some very important rulings in favor of the athletes, including how the market was going to be defined and the fact that these compensation limits were anti-competitive. So the NCAA lost as a matter of law on a pretrial motion that these compensation limits that the athletes were challenging in Austin were anti-competitive as a matter of law. So the athletes didn't even have to be put to the burden of proof on that issue, which which takes them a, a good bit of the way in this rule of reason analysis. So after that summary judgment ruling, and that really was a consequential ruling, and both both Waxman and Kessler talk about that in their oral argument in Austin to the Ninth Circuit and, and the importance of that. But after that ruling on the motion for summary judgment, the, the athletes were in the driver's seat. And the NCAA realized that they're going to have to go through the rest of this rule of reason analysis and all the, the stuff they went through in O'Bannon. But lost in that was that the NCAA never lost sight of their ultimate goal. And that was to resurrect at some point this argument that they simply are above the antitrust laws. They're above any law that attempts to place any limit on their Iron Throne regulatory authority. So after the summary judgment, you have the court moving forward and then ruling in the athlete's favor, giving them this modest education-related benefit, which the NCAA then appeals to the Ninth Circuit. And in their initial brief to the Ninth Circuit in Austin, and it's their joint, the defendant's joint opening brief, which is their big position paper on why they're appealing and why they should win on appeal, the NCAA doesn't really address explicitly any of the arguments it made in O'Bannon about not being subject to antitrust laws, about this not being commercial activity, about Board of Regents basically giving the NCAA a free pass so long as the regu- they're regulating in, in amateurism-based compensation limits context. But it drops this footnote in a discussion really that had nothing to do with those issues. And it said, Quote, this is uh, on page 25, note two, just drop this little footnote. You would read right through it. I read right through it when I first read the brief. And then I I went back and and when I was picking it apart a little more carefully, I, I saw this and I thought, whoa, wait a minute, this is big. So they dropped this little footnote and it says, in O'Bannon, this court disagreed with the NCAA that its amateurism rules are valid as a matter of law under Board of Regents. Defendants preserve this argument for further review. Now, you read that, and and you may not initially appreciate the import of that, but if you had followed O'Bannon, and then you're looking at how the NCAA is handling this Austin case, and then into the ninth, its Ninth Circuit appeal in the Austin case, and you see the absence of all these threshold 
big time arguments about being completely outside the scope of antitrust laws or even within the Board of Regents framework, getting a free pass so long as you're regulating in your sphere of uh, amateurism-based compensation limits and preserving amateurism and all the stuff that they pulled from the dicta in Board of Regents. So you, you don't see that and you're like, what's going on here? So th- what's going on is that the NCAA, that footnote is like a kind of a silent delay triggered bomb. <laughs> and they waited until they were essentially through the Ninth Circuit process before they really set that bomb off in in page 25, footnote 2. And it was when I read that uh, footnote that I reached out to some people well-placed in the litigation on the athlete side and said, wait a minute, there's something going on here, and, and this footnote's troubling. (laughs) And uh, you need to be prepared. The NCAA is going to come at you at some point, I think, with the clear bomb. And it was clear they wanted to get that argument in front of the Supreme Court in O'Bannon. And then it was clear that that's exactly what they wanted to do in Austin. And, And remember, I'll say this again, because it's so important. The athletes didn't appeal the Austin ruling. They were happy with the Austin ruling. The athletes' attorneys got attorney's fees in the Austin ruling. So everybody was happy on the athlete side. The NCAA appealed that ruling, and then they lost in the Ninth Circuit, and then they appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the NCAA pushed this issue, this kind of silent bomb that was sitting in this footnote, through the Ninth Circuit without a lot of scrutiny, because they didn't really make that a centerpiece of their argument, and then into the U.S. Supreme Court, where all of a sudden, boom, they are back to what they were doing in O'Bannon, explicitly asking for antitrust immunity. And as they're pushing this strategy in Austin, they're also weighing what the likelihood is of them getting this same result, the same antitrust immunity in Congress, and that became less and less realistic as the debate evolved in the Senate. And then, of course, when the NCAA lost control of the narrative after the special elections in, on January 5th. So all of a sudden, and then you had the, the ginsburg Coney barrett switch out. So all these things are happening. And then the NCAA is like, boom, this is our chance. This is our chance in the U.S. Supreme Court. And now they are full court press, antitrust immunity. They're just lying about it. They weren't lying about it in O'Bannon. Now they're just lying about it. And I'll just note that I wrote specifically about the the footnote, that Austin footnote in the Ninth Circuit on November 1st, 2019. So saw that early in the game. And it's taken a while, I think, for some of the people in the on the athlete side in the litigation to fully understand what the NCAA has been doing here. So I'm going to link to those posts. There was actually another post where I talked about that as well. But in that November 1st post, I I really focused on that footnote and and the consequence of it. And I'll say this, uh, the the reason I know that was the NCAA's strategy is that the athletes in their Austin briefing said that the NCAA had essentially abandoned this argument about antitrust immunity and all these threshold defenses about Board of Regents giving them a free pass so long as they're regulating in an amateurism area or this not being commercial activity and therefore outside the scope of antitrust laws. And the NCAA responded in the U.S. Supreme Court by citing to this footnote that I'm talking about and saying, yeah, we preserve that that issue for appeal. So that is irrefutable evidence that their intention with this footnote in the Ninth Circuit briefing was to keep this issue alive, but keep it as deeply buried 
as possible because I don't think they wanted the athletes focusing on that issue. They didn't want that Ninth Circuit fo- focusing on that issue. And boom, now it's, it's alive and well. So let's just take a look at how the NCAA has tried to cover their tracks here. And remember, the, the athletes have just come out and said, this, they're asking for antitrust immunity. There's no question about it. It's on the table. And they built a large part of their uh, argument in their uh, response brief to the NCAA's initial brief around the notion that the NCAA is doing just that, seeking antitrust immunity. But the NCAA has come up with these benign euphemisms for antitrust immunity that it's trying to sell to the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of them is called abbreviated deferential review. Don't you like that? And they've created this out of whole cloth. And basically what they're saying is that, well, we're not asking for antitrust immunity, but but where we're talking about regulating on amateurism-based compensation limits under a board of regents, we're entitled to this presumption that, that any regulation that we uh, rely on is presumptively valid because of this dicta in board of regents. So, because we have that authority, and because Board of Regents has tacitly endorsed this, if we're sued for an antitrust violation that's based on a challenge to our compensation limits, all we have to do is just go into court and say, we deem this a challenge to an eligibility rule that relates to amateurism-based compensation limits, and the case should be dismissed. So they say, this should be dismissed on the pleadings at the motion to dismiss phase, which means that there's no discovery, there's no answer, there's no inquiry, there's no discussion, there's no rule of reason analysis. But don't you dare call it antitrust immunity. This is just the ordinary application of the rule of reason analysis and our conceptualization of amateurism. Just get this little bump up that results in a complete trump card. That's what abbreviated deferential review is. And then there's this other thing that they call a quick look review. And that actually has some precedential value in antitrust litigation. Because in cases where the per se rule doesn't apply, and it's not this instant slam dunk, and the full rule of reason applies, courts have devised this quick look way of allowing a court to look at a an anti-competitive practice and the asserted pro-competitive justification and determine that on its face, it is a violation of antitrust laws. So the quick look is designed not to benefit somebody who's engaging in anti-competitive behavior, but somebody who's challenging that behavior. And when, they, when the court looks at it under a quick look analysis, they just say, look, this is ridiculous. This is obviously anti-competitive, and we're not going to put the parties to the burden of having to, or the plaintiff, through the burden of having to prove up the case in the full rule of reason analysis, they slam the gavel and issue a remedy and say, next. The NCAA has turned that completely upside down, and it wants the U.S. Supreme Court to adopt the quote-unquote quick look to allow the NCAA to skate from antitrust liability under a quick look analysis. And again, it's the same as with this deferential abbreviated review. The NCAA 
under this quick look analysis, they just march into court and they say, hey, look, Your Honor, this is an eligibility rule. This is amateurism-based compensation limit challenge. It goes to the heart of our eligibility requirements. It's the heart of who we are. It defines our product. It's what we're all about. Here's our motion to dismiss. Gavel, bang, next case. That's how they want it used. And and it, it's ridiculous on its face, but you have to give the NCAA's lawyers some credit for just having pure moxie. I mean, they're just going supersized cojones here. And it's just amazing to see them do this. So it'll be interesting to see if the Supreme Court buys into this notion that they are just trying to use an ordinary application of the rule of reason analysis rather than this outright claim to antitrust immunity. There's a part of me that hopes some justice is just going to call them out on this because it's so audacious. But, and this goes back to the point I made in this in the prior episode and some other, other episodes as well, there's a reason that the NCAA has hired the most powerful and prestigious lawyers in D.C., in the United States, and in the world to defend their interests because this is this they are viewing this as like the last stand. This is the existential threat, and they're going to fight to the death to make sure that they win. And I didn't mention this in the last episode. I, I, I meant to, but I, but I didn't. But I said that the NCAA had admitted that they were power playing with these big time attorneys, and that was a part of a part of a purposeful strategy. And in a July 16th, 2019 article by Inside Higher Education, the NCAA's chief financial officer, their bookkeeper, essentially, Kathleen McNeely, who makes, I don't know, $600,000 a year. She was quoted in an article, and I don't think she gets interviewed a lot. Most of this propaganda comes out through Emmert and through Remy and all the people who are paid to propagandize. But McNeely's a financial person. She's not a polished spinmeister. So she just said this with, I think, a sense of obviousness and honesty that I, I wonder if the NCAA national office was happy with. But here's what she said. She was asked about the suits, and this article was about legal uh, fees and that, and the massive uh, increase in uh, NCAA legal fees through some of this antitrust litigation. And she, so she was asked about that. And, and here's what McNeely said. She said, we really can't lose these lawsuits. This is fundamentally what college sports are about. And so that means we're hiring really good attorneys with national reputations and who have argued in front of the Supreme Court so that we can win. Don't you love that? I mean, she just came out and said it. And she was referring there, of course, to these attorneys who have argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. She's referring to Seth Waxman. And she's saying, look, we're going to win. And we're going to do whatever it takes to win. And we're going to use any means necessary to win. And that's exactly what the NCAA is doing in its Supreme Court strategy in Austin. Okay, so let's wrap this up now. I hope we have clearly established that the NCAA is indeed seeking antitrust immunity and its claims to the contrary are simply not very convincing. All right, so let's see. What are we going to do in the next episode? I really haven't decided yet. I've got like three different ways I could go, but I think I may talk a little bit about this consumer demand issue because I think it's going to come up in in this argument and um, there's going to be some discussion about that. I'll surprise you maybe. So there you have it. Thank you so much for joining and please come back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Mm-hmm.